general, one could say that the expectations of those who started to think about labor around the independence of most African countries so in the early 60s, they all expected more or less that Africa would go the way Europe has gone or the North Atlantic world has gone. That is, I mean, the majority of those who work will be wage laborers in one way or the other. This did not happen. I mean, people work for wages, but often, for instance, without any formal contract, without a formal health insurance or pension scheme. So what we have now, I think, is a huge mix of people working, people in Africa working. They often work a lot under very hard conditions, but often it is hardly remunerated. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Andreas Eckert, Professor and Chair of African History at Humboldt University in Berlin, and the Director of the Kette Hamburger Kolleg Work and Human Life Cycle in Global History. Andreas Eckert was guest of the principal here at SCAS during spring 2017. And this is the first episode in the theme on Africa, and we will hear more about labor in post-colonial Africa. We will also talk about the effect of the coronavirus pandemic on work and the labor market, both in Africa and other parts of the world. So, very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Oh yes, thank you very much and welcome. As I said, I'm Andreas Eckert, I'm a historian of Africa. And I'm uh, teaching since 2007 at Humboldt University Berlin. Before, I've taught for a couple of years at the University of Hamburg. I started to uh, got interested in African history as a student when I had the opportunity to study for one year as an undergraduate in Cameroon at the University of Yaounde. And since then, African history never left me. So just to get an overview before we get into the details of your research, could you tell us broadly what your research is about? I have a couple of interests. I mean, first of all, being an historian of Africa or university professor of, of African history in Germany means that you are only one among a small group of people. So I think we have five, maybe six shares in the German-speaking world, which includes uh, Austria and German-speaking Switzerland. So we are very few. People, of course, expect from us a broad range of interests and topics. And at the same time, of course, the international debates and discourses, research on African history is often very specialized. So one of the challenges of being an historian of Africa in Germany is that on the one hand, I have to serve a wide array of, of interests and themes. On the other hand, I also have to do a specialized work. So uh, what is already rather unusual in the Anglophone, Anglo-American world is that I worked and did also research on not only two different countries, but also two different parts of Africa. On Cameroon, which is mainly Francophone in West Central Africa, and on Tanzania, which is Anglophone, but also with a strong element of Swahili, because Swahili is uh, one of the national languages. And then I also did research on a couple of other countries. That has to do with the fact that if you want to become a professor in Germany, you have to cover a lot of ground, so to speak. And also my research interests changed. I started working on anti-colonial resistance. Then I worked on urban history with a 
special focus also on questions of uh, land ownership and conflicts uh, over urban land. Then I worked about the colonial state and especially about African bureaucrats, that is about people who during the colonial period worked for the colonial state and the colonial administration. And since a couple of years now, I'm mainly interested in social history and especially labor history or the history of work in Africa. So this is now the topic I'm working most about, although I have to say that I still write and publish about a number of other things. And it happens rather often that I'm asked to contribute to some conference and some collective volume because they feel they need also something about Africa, which is on the one hand very good because I'm also forced and obliged to leave my comfort zone and read and think about a number of topics. But one always has to be cautious that you don't talk about many things where you only have very limited knowledge. Or at least you should make clear that when you talk or write about this, this is mainly from a perspective of someone who has read about it, but never did deep research about it. I have listened to quite some interviews on Deutschlandfunk with you before this. So it seems like they also call you up as the expert on Africa. Yes, that's true. I mean, there are certain mechanisms in the media also that they like to call often to the same people, especially if they have the feeling that this person is ready and willing to talk about things, usually for a few minutes only. I mean, one of our scholarly issues is that, that things are complicated and we would always like to really present the ambiguities, the differences, the complications. But when you have one minute, 30 seconds, or let's have three minutes, you can't say too much. And I think this is something where a lot of my colleagues shy away. I study journalism as a minor. I usually write still for newspapers and as you just mentioned, I also talk in the radio from time to time. And I think this is, for me, also an important part of my job, that you also try to convey what you have to say to a broader audience. But one, again, one has to be cautious. I try to talk about topics that I know something about. People think, okay, he is a specialist on Africa, so he should know about everything in Africa. And it's sometimes difficult to tell people, look, Africa has more than 50 countries. It's a highly complex continent with very different histories, very different political orders. So you think that someone who works on different parts and time periods of Germany is already a kind of broadly knowledgeable person. But from us Africanists, and the same applies to specialists for Latin America or Asia, I presume, they expect that you can talk about 50 countries and about all aspects be it economy, culture, or the political system. So I think this is something where one has to be very cautious and also you have to say no to a couple of requests. Very nice to hear that you engage in the public outreach and debate also. So your special interest nowadays is labor. What, how should we define labor or work, first of all, just so we're on the same starting ground here? This question, which uh, sounds so simple, is, of course, a very complicated question because we are in the middle of a huge debate. So let me escape from this question by making a little tour also into the historiography and into labor studies in general, because for a long time, labor 
used to be defined as wage labor. Research on labor slash work was mainly on labor or occupations or activities for which you got a salary in one way or the other. Okay, there was forced labor as a kind of different thing, but this is what was the kind of main definition. And most research on you, but also on Africa, focused on wage laborers. And I think a huge change was triggered in the 70s, maybe 80s, also very much related to the women's movement because they argued women do so much unpaid labor in the household, education of children, care work, but nobody really uh, talks of it as work or labor. And so we have to really make sure that this is also recognized as labor, if it is paid or not. And this was also a kind of political motivation. And then people realized there are so many people in the world who work, but not necessarily for wages. And we have this whole sector then of informal labor where people do not have a working contract, let alone a social welfare package, but they still work. People work a lot in many, many dimensions and many activities. So now, in some ways, or if you look at some research, we move from one extreme to the other. So while for a long time, it was only wage labor that counted as labor that could be researched or written about, now nearly everything seems to be labor in one way even drinking, or you work on your relationship with your partner, or you do body work. The other difficulty is, of course, that we have in so many different languages, many different words, concepts, expressions. I mean, even in German, it's very difficult to really see the distinction between labor and work. And this is one example. Okay, I mean, there have been explanations. Hannah Arendt, for instance, argued that labor is more associated with toil, it's kind of hard work, while work is more the creative activity, but others would think it differently. And in many languages, you do not even have a specific word for activities which we would associate with labor or work, but you have a set of expressions for it. So it's very difficult. So I think instead of assuming or working on the basis of one clear-cut definition, it's important to see how many possibilities there are. But at least when you start talking about labor and work, you should say, okay, what do you mean by it? What do you understand by it? And the problem was that for a long time, it was not really reflected. So it was a kind of given understanding that labor is something for which you get some remuneration or some wages. And this, I think, has changed. And this is also one of the big shifts in the studies of labor. And this is also something with which we are increasingly confronted. You have not only in the usual places like Africa, Asia, you have a lot of informal labor, but also increasingly in parts of Europe, in North America, the idea of what was considered for a long time as a normal working relation or normal working life also. So you grow up, you go to school, you do an apprenticeship or something, then you start working, you more or less stay in the same profession, in the same job or company, and then you retire. And then you stop working and enjoy the fruits of your life and, and you also get a sufficient pension for it. This is not the real has never been the reality for the majority of people in the world. And it's becoming less and less a rule. I mean many people change jobs a lot. They don't have necessarily a solid social welfare package and so on. And these changes 
also, of course, are reflected now in the way we look at work and research at work. So in many ways, Africa or what is going on in terms of labor and work in Africa is not so different or not so exotic compared to what is going on increasingly in many other places in the world. You've recently been publishing a book, been the editor of a book, together with Felicitas Henschke. And the book is called Corona and Work Around the Globe. And this is a collection of essays or papers from research fellows around the world who each give their perspective on the pandemic through the lens of labor, if I've understood correctly. And we are recording this now in March 2021, and many of us have just celebrated the one-year anniversary of working from home. Of course, we who can do this are very privileged. I'm one of those persons. It doesn't influence my work too much to be working from home. And I guess it's the same for many academics. But there are, of course, other people who are more influenced by this. So let's talk a little bit about the, the book. First of all, the background. How came this one to life? Why did you collect these stories? It was a, a kind of spontaneous ideas. First of all, it came from the fact that we couldn't invite any more fellows. Fellows had to go home. We couldn't do a couple of conferences we had planned and so on and so forth. And this, of course, was closely uh, related to Corona. And then we also got emails and messages from many of our former fellows who are in South Africa, India, Senegal, Ethiopia, and they were reporting about what's going on, how they experience it, how they also experience their immediate neighborhoods and so on, what they observe. So then we had the spontaneous idea that we should ask a couple of our former fellows to write about transformations in their region through the lens of labor. So what changed in terms of labor relations practices, labor politics. And also one of the ideas was to find out to what extent uh, Corona only accelerated or increased already existing tensions and forms of exploitation, or to what extent Corona also really represented a true turning point. But the overall message was not so much a turning point than that it really brought to light most often negative sides of the worlds of work and labor. And so we asked them to write not scholarly pieces, some did, but also more essays about how they, as historians or specialists of labor, observe the kind of transformations going on. And then we kind of bundled it. And then we had a kind of broader groups of themes or thematical groups. One was about specific professions, the whole thing about care work and health work, how this became suddenly prominent, but also what was defined as kind of crucial jobs in a society. And very often these crucial jobs were practiced by people who were more at the margins, often poorly paid, not really recognized. I mean, I don't know about Sweden, but in Germany, there's a big debate about the health and care sector as, as a sector where, where less and less people want to work because you have horrible working hours, you are not very well paid, and so on and so forth. But also, I mean, very simple migrant, contemporary migrant workers who work uh, in the meat industry, but also for the agrarian production. There was this big debate then, what can we do in the spring for asparagus and other things without the Polish workers who usually come? 
that was an interesting thing to see. I mean, how vulnerable marginal groups suddenly became somehow core workers. But at the same time, there was a kind of short moment where there were, you know, where there was a huge uh, amount of appraisal and many countries at a certain hour of the day, people went out and clapped their hands and so on. Yeah, but, but then when nurses, for instance, asked for a considerable increase of their salary, nobody was clapping anymore and they were rather left alone. So there was one insight. Uh, one other was, of course, in terms of generation, youth in many parts of the world, felt even more blocked. Access to labor market became more difficult. And it's also important to see, of course, I mean, it's already tragic or very sad when you can't do your year abroad or something as a still rather well-supported student in Europe. The other thing is then when you can't find a job at all, the shrinking entries into the labor market are even more closed. So use is often regarded, but also sees itself very much as a loser, one of the big losers of the coronavirus. The other thing was what we could see is that uh, a group that suffered very often, of course, are those, I mean, not only freelancers, but also all the informal workers. I mean, India is, of course, the most drastic example. Due to this heavy lockdown, all possibilities of work or generating an income was cut, and people walked thousands of kilometers to their home villages. And maybe a last point was, of course, that many regimes used also the pandemic in, in order to introduce even much harsher politics, suppression of oppositional groups, including workers, workers' associations, and so on. So, I mean, you could see, of course, huge differences, but also kind of similarities in many parts of the world. But you could also see how much, of course, the world is connected. Just one last example. Many African communities, regions, are quite a bit dependent on so-called remittances. That is, the money that people from the community make in Europe, and then they send parts of it back. The overall sum of remittances in 2018 was more than all development aid was going to Africa. And of course, this was getting down quite a bit. So the fact that African migrants in many parts of the world, due to the coronavirus, had increasing difficulties to make money. They could send much less money back. And of course, that very much also shaped the opportunities of people in, in many African regions to survive or to do something. This kind of links became also very visible during the crisis. So the bottom line is Corona very much increased existing injustice exploitations. In the end, marginalized those who are already marginalized even more. Yeah, it's also interesting what you say about um, Africans not being able to send money home because, I mean, Africa has been largely quite spared from the virus itself, but then you still have the economic effect. Exactly. So, I mean, many, many uh, international companies did not invest as they planned. And we shouldn't forget that uh, in Africa also there have been quite a few lockdowns. South Africa was the most important example. And also in countries like South Africa, but also Kenya, tourists are an important part of the economy. Again, I mean, there was much less investment and also less possibilities to trade and to sell things. So I think, yes, 
many people argue, although I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, but argue, of course, that the economic effects of the pandemic so far have been much worse than the uh, public health effect. Although people in Africa are also dying. But on the other hand, I mean, there is at least in certain countries, there are rather good mechanisms how to deal with pandemics. Of course, Africa has much more experience in dealing with pandemics. And even though, of course, the health system is much poorer and less developed, I think there is a certain professional way of dealing with that. Yeah, I know a postdoc here in Uppsala who was returning home to Ethiopia to his family during last spring. As soon as he landed, they were all taken from the plane to a hotel where they had to sit 14 days in quarantine. This is true. Still, I think one does not need to be an exceptional pessimist to see that, that Africa again will be hit very hard. But as I said, probably mainly through the economic costs and also maybe political costs. And for the health, we have to see. We do not have that many statistics. And of course, I mean, this is at least a, a common argument. I'm not sure if this is true or if this holds. But of course, Africa is also a very young continent in terms of its population. Even though people probably got infected, they were not so much suffering from it. But there are also virologists and, and public health people who say, hmm, let's be careful about this. And we're not done yet with the pandemic. That's right. And then also right now, there's a lot of discussion about vaccinations. And of course, the whole world should be vaccinated, right? That's right. I mean, this is, again, many organizations refer to the fact that this kind of egoism, the selfish behavior of a number of countries who say we have to be vaccinated first, will feed back because the problem is this will facilitate. And you see already, I mean, this is a different case in Brazil, where there's this kind of horrible corona strategies, but that there might be then variations where the vaccine we have so far won't help. And of course, this is, as far as I understood it, the danger that if you don't provide also enough vaccine, let's say for African countries, there might be then developments of mutations And they will come back. You can't keep them off the rest of the world, which then might even create a greater mess than we already have. It's very blind, egoistic, but also idiotic in a way. I mean, this is one of the lessons, I think, that the pandemic provided us, that we can't just put a fence around ourselves and then these viruses won't come. I don't understand, to be very honest, why there's not a slightly more how should I say, creative politic about ensuring global vaccination. And I'm afraid that in 10 years' time or 15 years' time, a number of people will say, oh, at this point, we really made a huge mistake. I agree with you there. We should know better in some points, and there will be quite a lot of lessons learned, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, for an historian, it's always frustrating uh, that, I mean, the idea, the learning from history, that simply doesn't work. <laughs> so... One of our arguments that why you, why you need historians, that we give you lessons from the past that could be creatively used in the present to create a better future. I'm afraid that has been an illusion so far, but uh, we see. Yeah, so in a previous episode in Skas Talks, a historian, Frederick Schapentier-Jungquist, talked about the history of pandemics. And he was comparing the coronavirus pandemic to the Spanish flu in particular. And that was episode number three, which we published last summer for those listeners who were interested. 
So anyway, it was very interesting to hear more about that perspective from an historian. And Frederick Charpentier-Jungquist also said that he would like to contribute and talk to politicians and so on. But so far, historians have not been invited to the discussion. No, no, I mean, it's also, I mean, this is another topic so far. I mean, who who are the experts who are now close to those who decide or make political decisions? There's a strong emphasis on the medical profession and biologists. You have some psychologists, maybe, or some sociologists who have to tell you when the population will get mad and what to do about it. But yeah, I'm afraid that historians are not very much in charge. It's true that most of us simply lack the knowledge and expertise to really link it. But I would say that people who can competently compare the uh, 1980-1990 flu influenza and, and today, of course, I mean, there are some things to be said. And at least, I mean, to be aware of how former societies or in other contexts have dealt with it, I think opens at least some rooms for thought and for reflecting about what to do and what are the experience of former times. So yes, some more history and historical expertise would be useful. On the other hand, in the end, politicians have to decide. In a way, the corona crisis, be it in terms of labor or of many other topics, is a very interesting period because, I mean, so many things are coming up, emerging things you have to think about. If not, it would mean so much sufferings. And that's also a thing I was reflecting about when looking through the book, that there's so much, I mean, almost everything is affected by this pandemic and there's so much we can learn from it. Already there is so much material that just you have collected in this book and there's even more out there. So we have a massive amount of data, if you wish to call it that, to, to analyze and It will keep future generations of scholars quite busy, I think. Also because, I mean, it's also open-ended. Many say, I mean, corona will never go away in the broader sense. Maybe the virus at some point will be under control, more or less. But the way corona shaped societies worldwide, that will stay with us. Let's switch a little bit then to Africa and your research there on labor, especially in post-colonial Africa. First of all, can you take us there? Can you take us to Africa? What is the situation there in terms of labor and the labor market? Although George W. Bush once famously said Africa is a big country, it is also a continent with many countries. And of course, the situation is very different depending on where you have some industry where you have a huge part of agriculture, where you have mainly nomads, things differ a lot. I mean, in general, one could say that the expectations of those who started to think about labor around the independence of most African countries so in the early 60s, they all expected more or less that Africa would go the way Europe has gone or the North Atlantic world has gone. That is, I mean, the majority of those who work will be wage laborers in one way or the other. This did not happen. So wage labor in the sense of someone who has a contract, who has maybe also some some social benefits, also has some labor rights, who's maybe represented by a trade union, that's 
the exception. People work for wages, but often, for instance, without any formal contract and again, without a formal health insurance or pension scheme. So what we have now, I think, is a huge mix of people working, people in Africa working. They often work a lot under very hard conditions, but often it is hardly remunerated. And the so-called informal sector, which is a difficult, probably not a very useful term, although we don't have any alternatives, is, of course, very important in a way that many people work exactly in labor relations where they don't have any... I mean, the informal sector is often very structured, but not in a way how we imagine a labor market. The reality is, I think, that most people work in a context which does not correspond to our image of how a normal labor relation, which even in Europe hasn't been normal, but only for a group mainly of male people, does function. I think one of the big problems and huge challenges of labor and the labor market in Africa is that Africa, I already mentioned, is a very young continent. The overall majority is younger than 35, often much younger. And also that, uh, in general, the education system improved. So more and more people go to school, even have a degree or university or something. But there are hardly any jobs for them. And I think this gap between, on the one hand, expectations linked to a better formal education and the reality of a job market that does offer very little qualified jobs. That is, I think, one of the most demanding problems African states and African politicians have to face. And yes, we have, and I think it's important to tell them success stories of African entrepreneurs who, who find niches for themselves in a number of businesses, but they are more the exception than the rule. And one thing is, in fact, that the huge economic growth, at least in numbers, I mean, Africa has been, or a number of African countries had enormous growth rates, at least in the early 2000s, for instance. If you just look at a country like Angola, also Nigeria, with a lot of oil or petrol income, but this does not create any jobs. The oil industry, for instance, does not create many jobs. We have a few foreign experts who do the things, and that's it. The Chinese, who have been one of the most important factors also for African countries and the labor market there, often brought their own workers. And even then with products made in China, they often ruined the local production of certain items. As, for instance, also the EU agrarian politics ruined the possibilities of agrarian workers and peasants. The irony that an egg coming from Europe, chicken, is cheaper than the chicken grown in Africa is idiotic, but it has, of course, to do with a lot of support and so on. But the big problem is to find, let's say, qualified work for a growing number of people who are qualified to do good work. And I think just hoping for the market or the miracles of the market is not enough. And the fact that you have very creative entrepreneurs in Africa who are also successful is in relation to I mean, the size of those seeking for a job, even a quantité negligible. And of course, there is no quick solution to it. 
Because as I just mentioned, I mean, just the fact that, for instance, the European uh, agrarian subventions uh, ruin the working possibilities of a lot of people in the agrarian sector. It's nothing where you have remedies for a specific African country and say, if you do it like this, then you will succeed. It will be a complex and a very difficult project. And some even suggest that uh, something like minimum salary for everyone would be the solution. There is something to it. The old image, I wouldn't call it a dream, but the old thing that if you empower people through education, this is a way to really bring people to work and make them independent and successful. But this does not seem to work anymore. I mean, there was saying, I mean, you don't need to give people a fish or you don't have to give people a fish, but you have to teach them how to fish themselves. But this kind of logic, I mean, even if we stay in the fishing sector, there's no fish left because all these big trawlers from other countries are taking the fish far ahead from the coast. So for those who are at the coast and want to fish, there's no fish left. This is one of the big problems which you can't solve just by saying the market will do it. But again, I mean, I don't have any solution for it, but I see it as a very, very crucial point, which will, it sounds pathetic or a bit dramatic, but which will, I think, decide also very much about the future of Africa. And also the kind of social peace and how, I mean, societies will develop and how much violence there will be. And again, I mean, all these refugees who are in the media all the time, again, are people who often are very well qualified. They do not come necessarily because they think it's all so nice in Europe and so on, but because they think, okay, we are qualified, we want to work. And here we can't find anything. Two weeks ago or one week ago, there was this uh, kind of demonstrations and so on in Senegal. And it was exactly this topic. It was mainly young people who were frustrated about the president who made a lot of promises but they feel he didn't do anything for the youth or to open up perspectives for them. So this kind of generational conflict around, among other things, access to qualified working activities, I think is, is something which is, which is a burning issue in Africa and will continue to burn. It's associated to a lot of other factors, as you say, in the society. I was thinking about this informal um, labor, informal work that you were talking about. Do you have any example of that? What are these opportunities? The classic informal labor is these people you see everywhere in Africa selling fruits or cigarettes on the street or work sometimes here and sometimes there, try to seek uh, some work maybe in, in a little company and then work somewhere else. But in many ways, people who don't have a nine-to-five job. The problem is, I think, that institutions like the World Bank have regularly celebrated these activities as a kind of, you know, training for entrepreneurship. But there's a lot of poverty and misery related to that. So, so people do not know if they can make ends meet at the end of the day. They depend also on a certain mobility. That's why corona was so devastating to them. But informal can mean a lot. I mean, there's this general association of the vendors, street vendors, but you also have people who, who work in certain businesses or certain craft ships, but 
don't have a regular payment and don't have uh, regularly access uh, to work or to material to work with and so on. They don't have clear working schedule. They improvise a lot. Most uh, importantly, they do not have any any rights, very few rights associated to their activities. And trade unions, of course, have the utmost difficulties to come to terms with these informal and precarious workers, because trade unions are modeled around a specific profession or a specific branch and usually represent those who work in these branches. And I think this is also one of the big challenges in Africa and elsewhere, how to organize these workers who become or are already the majority of those who work, but apparently have sets of interests that for the fantasy or the imagination of trade unions is too diverse to be ready to be organized. This is something really which is important. And we see instances in Africa and India where informal workers try to organize themselves, where they went on strikes and when they try to really voice their concerns. So this is also something in transition or, or shifting these workers who, who now maybe also not becoming proletarianized uh, in the Marxian sense, but who see themselves as also sharing uh, certain interests and that the only way to really achieve something is to organize and work together, which is in practice often very difficult. But you see signs that people try to do this. How does the heritage from colonialism influence? Can you see differences there in the different parts of Africa? Or There are different elements of it. At the end of the colonial rule, most colonial powers try to create a small working class, so to speak, which they imagine to transform into modern workers. But this small group, I mean, was in a way too small. Then they were very quickly suppressed. They played an important role in decolonization but they were quickly suppressed by the rulers or the first rulers of independent Africa because they, they still remembered how important these workers' association and trade unions were in order to put pressure on the colonial powers. In many countries, trade unions were demolished or became part of the one-party state somehow and so on. So independent African countries already inherited a kind of small organized, I mean, formal working class. And the idea that this would grow proved to be wrong. Also, many African countries inherited the kind of elements of a social welfare state that has been introduced in the late colonial period. But often, this welfare state only existed on papers. Very few people in the end got pensions. First of all, those who work for the state. So not so much, let's say, manual workers, but very often more people who uh, worked in the in the offices and administrations of the state. But even this welfare package was heavily shrinking during the 80s and later when then most African countries underwent so-called structural adjustment programs, which meant cutting down state expenses and also meant very much cutting down pension funds and healthcare. This is at the level of labor, but of course, in broader terms, one of the continuities in many ways is that African economies in most cases are still occupy the role they had in the colonial period. They are just producers of raw material that is then put somewhere else. There is still 
not much industrialization or manufacturing. All the sector is already very small. And also, most of the agrarian products are then going out and are not processed locally. So Africa is still, in economic terms, very much the producer of something, produces raw material. And that's why Africa is economically interesting. That's why not only the Chinese, but many others are there uh, interested in oil, in gas, in coltan, but also in land. So there's this phenomenon of land grabbing, which means roughly that now a lot of consortiums, international companies buy, often under very dubious circumstances, huge arrays of land. But in order to, for the future, produce food for their countries. And of course, I mean, some, some African elites make a lot of money with it, but for the majority, it's a big problem. Africa's place or economic place in the world still continues to be very much the place it had, exceptions confirming the rule, under colonialism. And that also very much, of course, affects the labor market and labor relations in the continent. Although then we have to look very carefully and there are huge regional differences. So again, it's important not to talk about Africa as if it were only one country. Yeah, I guess there are a lot of differences also in what kind of um, raw material different countries can produce and so on. And so on. But you could see, I mean, that, that the richest countries in minerals are often, I mean, politically and also economically in a rather poor state. I mean, the Congo is, of course, the most famous sinister example. But also Nigeria is a state where, which didn't succeed for a number of reasons to really transform its riches into productive ways and also to let participate a considerable part of the population. On the other hand, of course, I mean, people produce many of these materials under terrible circumstances and, and for very low or non-existing income. And if people would pay decent salaries, then, of course, I mean, products would be much more expensive. This is not only true for Africa. I mean, we all know that also a lot of clothes are so cheap here because they are produced with very cheap and harshly exploited labor with no working place security, with no, with a very little income, with no health insurance, with no pension scheme, and so on and so forth. And this is, of course, a point we all have to think about it. I mean, that we very much, of course, still profit from the fact that in Africa and many other places, labor is harshly exploited. So we're back at solidarity there. In a way, yes, there are already things like consumer boycotts. I mean, you have cooperatives who at least claim that they pay fair prices to the peasants or producers and so on. And on the other hand, of course, this is something some people can afford and some others don't want or can't. I mean, because as people still want to want to make a lot of money, the fair trade chocolate is much more expensive than a kind of industrially produced chocolate. But not only because fair prices are paid to the peasants, but because also the money that is still or can be made through it by others is also, I mean, kept. And if you are a family with a low income, then paying whatever five euro for a chocolate piece is nothing you want to afford. So I think there's a, there's a kind of ambiguity also with solidarity. And a certain kind of solidarity you can probably only afford when you are rather wealthy. This also has to do, of course, with, with the way our economy works and how big companies get their labor force, get their products and, and what prices they pay and especially how much money they make. 
because I do not, how should I say, give or transfer the low prices or the low sum for which they pay certain goods to the consumer. So I think there's a lot of entry points. But again, it's nothing you can change overnight, of course. But I think one first step would be, and this is, I think, or it's my observation, increasingly happening, that people get aware of how things are produced and who's paying for it or who's paying the real cost for it. And that uh, the exploitation of cheap labor is an important factor in our economy. And, and often I think this labor is made invisible. We don't see it. We, see, we only see the products. This summer, when so many people were suddenly really surprised that these big meat factories, how people are working there, under which conditions, how they are housed, what salaries they get, what their labor contracts are. Because usually you don't see them. You just see the meat package in the supermarket. Even worse with other products. I mean, clothes, the coltan, so crucial for our mobile phones. Many other products. We only see the rent result. We don't see the labor that goes into it. And making this visible, I think, has been, or is still, an, is an ongoing important effort to at least create some consciousness. This might not necessarily and easily translate into a change in politics and economic structures, but it would be one of the first steps or entry points. And I think this is also an important task for scholars and experts to really refer to that and try to make that invisible labor visible and also say what it means and also say this is not, nothing which just happened yesterday. It's really part of a longer history of exploitation from slave labor in the 70th and 18th century that made or helped to create a consumer society in Europe until, if you want to call it slave labor or not, that's a different question, but let's say harsh exploitation of labor in other parts of the world that make a lot of consumption here possible. The title of this podcast episode, or at least the working title is Where Have the Workers Gone? Labor in Post-Colonial Africa. So where did they go? I mean, this was uh, in a way uh, a reference to what I already mentioned, that they did not go in this kind of wage labor so many experts and politicians of the time were expecting, that they would become in a way modern workers with a regular wage, with a welfare package. So this kind of formal labors remained a rather small group. But of course, um, people in Africa work, they work a lot. They work in very different branches. They, they work very hard to make ends meet, to survive under often harsh circumstances. And the title was, in a way, trying to say, I mean, the workers have gone here and here and there. They're in very different sectors of the economy. What they do, we don't often see. They work in ways or they, they don't have contracts. But also many workers have gone to other places outside Africa. And many societies profit from their expertise and their hard work, be it on orange plantations in Spain, be it as medical doctors or engineers, and you name it. The salary or the money they get from this work is very crucial also for African economies. So African people work everywhere in the world. They have been brought between the 16th or 15th and 19th century by force and through enslavement to many parts of the world to work hard. But Africans also continue to work, migrated to many places, and uh, yes, were exploited 
where also their work was needed and often was made invisible. But they also work on the continent itself in a number of capacities, but not in a way we still consider as the classic or normal way of working. They often don't have a work biography we think is still normal. As I said, education, training, job, retirement. And I think this is an important message or insight to convey because it seems to me that the old racist colonial stereotype about the lazy African is still very much around and that the work of Africans, for instance, in Europe is often reduced to drug dealing or criminality or something. And of course, one could now discuss or argue that also this is work in a way. And some people would definitely say it is, but this would lead us to the wrong direction. But I think it's important also to see that Africans worked as all other people from all other in many capacities, which includes also criminal work, but the overall majority works differently and in other professions. And I think this is something we, we should realize in order also to get a more realistic picture of what was going on or what is going on and what was going on in Africa and how Africans also work today. And in the beginning of our talk, you said that this is something that is happening here also in, in Europe, in Northern America and so on. Many people now talk about precarious work gaining much more ground. I mean, more and more people have only temporary contracts, don't have uh, social, I mean, social welfare programs are cut everywhere or are more and more restricted. It's one of the kind of strange observations you can make that um, many of the right-wing parties, like the Front National, for instance, they are very much supporting the social welfare system, but only for those they consider as real French. So social welfare is also something which can be seen in very exclusionary ways, only for a few people. But by and large, of course, social welfare is shrinking. People have to be what is often called more flexible, which means they're also getting more vulnerable. And then they are less and less paid. So I think there is also a certain increasing gap in most industrialized countries between those who have a very good job highly qualified job with a very good salary and the growing group of people who have to do rather badly paid jobs which are insecure with very limited temporary contracts and so on and so forth. And this is something which, um, of course, a capitalist entrepreneur call, I mean, the, the need for higher flexibility, but for those who then have to be that flexibility, it, it doesn't look very promising. I think this is something which we can see here too, and also the ways, I mean, how to organize and welfare. What does it mean? What does it mean for solidarity? I mean, the whole care work things. So I think it opens up a lot of very burning questions also in our societies. So there is no way anymore, there was never a way, but even less so today, that you see, oh, these people are all these informal precarious, and we here have a wonderfully organized labor market and system. Now I think many elements we see there in a more drastic form seem to emerge in most industrialized northern countries as well. Let's talk a little bit about SCAS, 
the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study and interdisciplinary research and also such environments. So you were guest here um, during the spring of 2017. What did you work on while you were here? Well, I was just working on a few articles. One was on kind of, how should I say, uh, the idea about the lazy urban worker in post-colonial Tanzania. And the other was a broader article on kind of transformations of labor in Africa in the 20th century. So it was good because these were both articles for which I could rely mainly on literature. And I also brought a few archival stuff anyway. So that was good because, I mean, this kind of articles, a few months I was here was exactly the time where I could write. So that was very pleasant. There were not that many obligations, which was good. Um, I mean, there were a few things. It's the North, North Africa Institute, which is just around the corner, which was very helpful in terms of library facilities and the journals they had. But also there were a couple of seminars uh, I could join. But it was a rather relaxed and light program in total, which I find or found um, very pleasant. And also because SCUS is rather small, it was still possible, I mean, because there was daily lunches and we also had a three-day, I think it was three-day excursion to Gotland. So there was also, I mean, there was enough time to socialize and to talk to other people. So I could do what I wanted to do. I was not really disturbed. I mean, of course, I disturbed myself by answering too many emails and maybe to look too often into my emails. But otherwise, this way, I would say, ideal working conditions. And also this, what, from my understanding, Institute for Advanced Study is not exclusively, but mainly or to a large extent about, that is really find the time to work and this thing you you start waking up with a topic in mind and you go to bed with it and during the day you have also time to read and maybe even read things which you do not necessarily immediately transform into a paragraph and an article but you just read a bit around and so on so this was really i think good and Uppsala was nice i mean there was enough to do but it was not a place where you had the feeling you had to go to see every day two or three different things. Sure. What does make a good research environment then? What do you need or wish for? To be left in peace, work calmly. Also have, let's say, access to the things you need. Also creating, let's say, sites or spaces of sociability so that you uh, don't become a total freak and just sitting in your office, but that you're also forced in one way or the other, to interact and to discuss with other people, be it on a more social level or be it also in, in, in scholarly terms. Why not? I think it's important if there are someone who is a specialist in whatever the social life of flies and is able to present it in an interesting way, then I think, okay, maybe it's nothing I can immediately use for my work, but it's interesting to know. In a way, a good institute can also mean, I mean, we have this nice German word, this Bildungserlebnis, so, so that you can really experience and can learn interesting things, uh, which will open your horizons, even though you might not use it immediately for your own research. And I always have experienced these institutes as places where this was possible, where you just meet some odd people, but also very interesting people who have interesting things 
to say in general, and you have interesting discussions. I remember at Princeton I had a fierce debate, a very interesting debate about a mathematician about, uh, I don't know, some political issue. And that was interesting because he was a smart man who thought about a lot of things, but not so much as a mathematician, but that these institutes are places where you meet smart people who also challenge you at a number of levels. And I think this is what, what these places can provide, a calm corner where you can work, but also force you from time to time to get out of this corner and confront yourself to the world and to the thoughts of other people. I found that then a very productive way of, of being. Also knowing that it is only for a certain time, that, uh, so you don't get too ambitious, and you also know there's another life. So that you always experience this as an exceptional form of academic being. I think this is important, because that makes you value this time more. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks. It was a pleasure to talk to you and hear more about your thoughts on a lot of things in this episode. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode within the theme Africa. And this time I have talked to Andreas Eckert, Professor and Chair of African History at the Humboldt University in Berlin and Director of the Kerte Hamburger Kolleg Work and Human Lifestyle in Global History, Rework. In the next conversation about Africa, I am talking to archaeologist Stephanie Wynne Jones from York University about historical ecologies in Africa. But before that, we will return to the topic of global governance this time focusing on neoliberalism. We will also hear more about the brain and studies on autism and travel to other galaxies to hear more about life in outer space. With this diversity of subjects, we hope that there is something of interest for everybody. And who knows, maybe you will, just like me, discover new fascinating topics that you didn't even know you wanted to know more about, just by following SCUS Talks. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can also give us a rating and a review in your podcast app. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Andreas Eckert once again for joining SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now.